brain cancer is a cancer that takes away who you are. Your brain being taken away from you will annihilate everything that makes us human, everything that makes us who we are. And I just find it the most evil of all cancers. I'm obviously biased because that's what our dad died of, but I think there's a strong argument to believe it's the worst cancer. And don't think you can go out, you can leave an experience like that not completely changed. And that certainly, I certainly am. Welcome to Glioblastoma, aka GBM, a podcast brought to you by the Glioblastoma Research Organization, highlighting stories with GBM warriors, caregivers, medical advisors, and more. Join us this season as we connect with members of our incredible community and have meaningful and insightful chats regarding all things glioblastoma. Please note that any information provided on this show is not meant to treat, diagnose, or prevent any disease, and all information that is discussed in our conversation is what worked for the individual themselves and should not be taken as advice. The information provided in the show is not a substitute for professional medical advice, and you should contact your medical provider and healthcare team with any questions. John Sidney McCain III was an American politician and United States Navy officer who passed away due to glioblastoma on August 25, 2018. As stated by his daughter, Megan, in his eulogy, he was a sailor, he was an aviator, he was a husband, he was a warrior, he was a prisoner, he was a hero, he was a congressman, he was a senator, and he was nominee for the President of the United States. Alongside these titles, John McCain was also a father, a grandfather, a son, a brother, a person that brought light and kindness to all those around him, and someone who lost their life too soon due to brain cancer. In honor of his passing, in June of 2019, the U.S. Senate took swift action and passed Senate Resolution 245 by unanimous consent, designating the third Wednesday in July as Glioblastoma Awareness Day. John McCain had a total of seven children, and I'm so unbelievably excited, thankful, and grateful to welcome two of them to the show today. Megan McCain is best known as an American TV personality, columnist, and New York Times best-selling author, alongside one of the most prominent voices in daytime television, while her brother James McCain is a legacy in the armed forces following his father's footsteps to serve his country and spent years working with the United States Marine Corps and then transitioned to become an officer in the United States Army Intelligence. Alongside these incredible careers and reputable titles that both Megan and James have, they're both people that understand the tumultuous journey that is glioblastoma, how it affects families, how it affects one's life, and they can understand what it's like to lose someone you love due to this horrible brain cancer. I can't thank Megan and James enough for having come on the show, for opening up to me and being vulnerable about their experience, for sharing personal insight, and for being advocates for glioblastoma. I hope you all enjoyed this conversation as much as I did. So without further ado, Megan and James McCain. Megan McCain, James McCain, thank you both so much for coming on Glioblastoma, aka GBM. I am so excited to chat with you today, and thank you for taking the time. Of course. And people call him Jimmy, so don't worry. Jimmy. It's Cat. Okay. <laughs> thank you for having us. I appreciate James it. sounds so formal. <laughs> thank you so much for having us. I really respect what you're doing, and I think it's really important to have conversations like this. And I don't think there's enough resources when it comes to any kind of brain cancer in general, especially when it comes to like families and friends and people trying to sort of navigate the deep, dark hole that is all brain cancer, but particularly glioblastoma. So I really applaud you. Thank for you. Starting this and doing it. And I'm really happy to be here. Thank you. I appreciate, appreciate both of you being here. And so I think just to start off, how are you both doing? I know it's about coming up on the four-year anniversary of your father passing away. How are you guys doing? How are your families? How is everyone? Yeah. So uh, also thank you for having us be here. When you first reached out, I was just really blown away that on what you were doing. And I just wanted to say that because when I know when me and Megan were going through everything with our father, we had plenty of conversations on the phone where it's like, the only thing anyone ever says about glio is, oh, it's the rarest brain cancer. Yet, for some reason, I have run into thousands upon thousands of people, including 
my neighbor randomly, her mother died of it, who oh, wow. had to suffer with this. So it's a terrible thing that it's almost like a quiet, no one wants to talk about it. I don't know if it's because the deterioration is so fast. So I just want to say it's great to be part of this with you because it's just anything for a family out there that is going through this that doesn't have, I mean, I just remember Googling what is Glio and having to be like, this is so shitty. Like why, <laughs> why is, you know, why is no one helping, you know? And coming up on the four-year anniversary, because that's what you asked, it's, I think the only thing that's changed in me is more like, I don't know, I get like a little angry because I still am in kind of close contact with our father's doctor and everything. And it just seems like there's people who are just like, well, we're working on it. And I'm like, what? Like just a little bit of a, I want there to be more awareness. So I'm very happy that you're doing this. I know that made absolutely no sense, but it's a lot of emotion, as you well know. You know, right? Absolutely, <laughs> I, I totally get it. And it's actually interesting. The reason I named the podcast "Glioblastoma," aka GBM, is because literally, when you Google what is glioblastoma, the first thing is glioblastoma, aka GBM. So it's you know a way to continue like sharing information and raising awareness. So that was sort of stemming. But Megan and you as well, like, how are you doing? How is everything? I mean, the thing, and you shared that you're, you started this because your father passed of glioblastoma too. Like Jimmy, I run into a lot of people. I actually made very close friends with someone who you should also interview named Andrew Bevan, who used to be the editor of Teen Vogue. We became friends literally just because we had a mutual friend and they, she was like, his dad died of glioblastoma. And I was like, can I please meet him and know him? And we have a very visceral bond as I do with quite a few other people over just that. And I think it's because it's a very, very scary cancer. It's a very intense diagnosis. It is a, anyone who has been through like the treatments with a family member or a loved one or been through treatments themselves, it's arduous. It's just a bastard of a cancer as all cancers are, but impacting the brain is a particular kind of hell, at least that's my experience and my perspective. And it's weird. I, I dread the anniversary of his death. It's very close to the anniversary of his birthday. He died on the 25th. He was born on the 29th. And I like dread it. And last year, I sort of ignored it. And then I felt like I was punished afterward karmically because I cried for like two weeks after. And I, and I hadn't in a long time because I'm pretty far along in my grief process. And I, I really actively work on it. Like I would do anything else. Like if like another thing I have to be on top of. But it's hard. I'm dreading it. I miss him every single day. Jimmy misses him. Our whole family, we have, we have, we are one of seven children. Jimmy and I were raised in the same house with two other siblings. They share the pain as well. And I think that this is a very weird metaphor. And excuse me for going on, but I talk for a living normally. One thing that actually weirdly has helped me with my grief is, and this is very weird, there's a horror movie called The Babadook, if anyone has seen it. And I found out afterward that it is a, if, if you haven't seen it, like pause, spoiler alert, but the like plot of the movie is that there's this like demon that moves in with this family and this boy like brings it to life and it's living in their house and they can't figure out what to do and they're going crazy. And at the end of the movie, it's living with them and they're feeding it. And it's like a part of their family. And I later found out that the director said it was a metaphor for grief. And that's exactly for me what grief is like. It's this demon I live with that I can tame. But that doesn't mean there aren't moments where it's encompassing my life in weird times and makes me sad and I still cry. But grief for me gets softer and quieter and easier as the years go on. But that doesn't mean it's easy. Right. I definitely agree. I, I find that, you know, with, with my journey with my father as well, it's like, I'll be great. And then you hear a song that reminds you of them. And all of a sudden you're like, oh, like this sucks, right? Or like, it's like little moments happen. And you get these like triggers, it comes and it goes and it's, you know, a roller coaster as everyone here unfortunately knows, but I appreciate you sharing. And so I guess just to backtrack a little bit, how did the journey with your father begin? How did you find out he had cancer? Were you very involved with him during the journey? Like, how did that work? You know, if you remember, he had fallen down and hit his head and that's how they found out he had a cut on his head. And then from there, they had given him a CAT scan or whatever, and they found it. So originally, I was he, we were in Phoenix, and I had gotten a phone call from my mom, and she said, 
come on down to the hospital and your dad hit his head. And then I walked into a room and right there, this doctor who had about the personality of a used sock looked over and said, (laughs) oh, by the way, he actually has brain cancer and then walked out of the room. (laughs) And I was like, what? And then as we all know on here, a ton of bricks falls on you. And then like we said, talked about, you have to sit there with your phone and Google, what is this? What is happening? And, and everything like that. That was the start for me trying to do, just figure it out from there. It was a very emotional time. And if I had a billion dollars, I would put a therapy dog in every hospital in the United States because <laughs> that was, it's not the best, but, but that was the start for me, the literal start. I know you probably meant that more metaphorically, but that was, Literally the moment. And then from there, we went to Sedona. And he went back to work for a little while, and then he came to Sedona eventually. So that was the beginning. And Megan, what about for you? Were you involved when he was getting treatment? How was that process? I found out I was in New York at the time, living in New York, working in TV. And my mom called me and said, she said that your dad got a scan. And I think you have to like, understand our family is very waspy and unemotive. We're very like cliche in that way. And neither of my parents are like very expressive with their emotions. And she said, it's like melanoma and it's bad. And I was like, I don't understand what that means. And then she said, I have to go. And then she got the phone and she texted me, it's glioblastoma. And I too Googled it. And then I called my dad, just like obviously a mess. Cause the thing I read was the statistics are just heart wrenching and very confused and very upset. And then this is like sort of macabre, but I was like, how long can you keep this a secret? This is not going to stay a secret because I work in media. It's not going to stay a secret. I was like, you have maybe 48 hours at best. This is too interesting and it's too intense and he's so famous and it's a deadly cancer. So I was actually concerned about getting on the phone with his strategist and his chief of staff and people to try and figure out what to do. And then We flew home. I think I flew home. It's all such a blur. I think I flew home. I can't remember. But I remember just feeling completely paralyzed in every way, like physically and emotionally. And then when it came to his treatment, we were all really involved. He was treated at Mayo Clinic. He was treated at Mayo Clinic and NIH. When he was in DC, it was NIH. And then in Arizona, it was at Mayo Clinic. And I'm still so grateful to his doctors and his caregivers. And he did radiation. He did a radiation that's like a pin where they like radiate. It's like the tiny gamma knife. No, it's it's like gamma, but that's not it. It's not Optune. They only have it in like three places in the country. Okay. It was like they laser around the tumors to make them like fall in on themselves. Got he it. Did that. You put like a really scary mask on. I remember he had like a Hannibal Lecter mask on when he did it and was obsessed with all, the fact that all his nurses were from Iowa. So he <laughs> did it for a long time. And it sort of worked for a little bit, but again, I don't want to depress anybody because for as many sad stories as I have, I know people that have really positive stories and are long-term survivors. And of course, hindsight's twenty twenty. There are things I could do differently in knowing it, but I think everybody's just doing the best they can in the moment that they can. And at a certain point, he sort of didn't want to do it anymore. He didn't want to do chemo and radiation because I think the treatment was killing him as much as the cancer was. And he just wanted to live in peace as long as he could. And he also decided that he wanted to have a documentary film crew come to Sedona to film him (laughs) as he was going through it. And there's a really beautiful documentary called For Whom the Bell Tolls about basically the last days of his life that is really beautiful, I think, tribute to him. That was the best part of having Megan around was bricks hit you and I'm like this mess, which you would think because like I was a Marine, I'd be like, let's go. But I was just like this like puddle on the floor. And then I just remember seeing Megan and her being like, we've got to focus on a lot of things. First of all, we got to keep this quiet. We got to get in it. But it was helpful. It was helpful. It was like a healing thing because for a second, your mind is not on this like awful thing that's happening. You, you have purpose out of nowhere. And that was always the kind of best part of seeing Megan during that. Cause you'd be like, I'm a wreck. I need to have a drink. And she'd be like, we're not having a drink until we figure this problem out. I was like, hell yeah. All right, let's do this. So it was an, I just wanted to say, I don't know if I've ever said that to you before, Megan, but it was always super helpful whenever you, you came around because I was like, at least we're going to have direction for the next bunch of days. You know what I mean? <laughs> I'm the oldest. So, so. <laughs> Thank you, Jimmy. I also feel I'm like- I'm a natural I'm, leader. No, I'm just, 
I'm just like super alpha. And I was panicked and like, you know, the only thing I really know how to do. And it gave me a feeling of control, even if it didn't exist. And I felt like our family was really good at putting responsibilities with different people. Even like my husband's job was like to try and distract my mom. And I remember he took her to see this horrible movie book club where like apparently one of the characters like takes Viagra and has, has a boner for half of it. And he was like, that's the worst I've ever seen in my life, but I'll do anything to make your mom like feel better. And I remember just, it was like, I like was obsessed with his diet. We got a masseuse to come. And again, like we're deeply privileged family. I did everything and everything we could think of. There was a man who was like a sushi connoisseur and Sedona and my dad loves sushi and I had him come make sushi for him a bunch of times because he all he wanted was sushi and it was every need he wanted even if it was as small as sushi or a massage or he did a acupuncture all the time too Mm -hmm. and then we would do like find western movies to watch together like anything and everything to make anybody feel better and make the experience even slightly easier but the process of death and watching death is heinous and horrific and deeply painful as you both know. I wouldn't wish any of it on my worst enemy. But I also feel like it was the great privilege of my life to be there during that process. It is a gift too. And it was just a privilege to be there for him, my hope and my mother to be there for both of them. Because my mother really took a big majority of the burden because she was there the entire time and you know had to do so much. But it's, this is how I explain it to people when people ask me about it. There is my life before glioblastoma and there's my life after. And that is when my life is over, that is how it will be defined easily. Mm -hmm. It changed who I am in every, I am very different now than I was. The like nucleus of who I am is still there, but I'm a very different person now than I was then. I think I'm much more serious, much more acutely aware of my mortality, very paranoid about my health in a way that is not healthy. And I used to be like even more so. And now like I can't watch movies where people die of cancer. I always cry whenever I hear anyone tell their stories. And I'm just much more emotionally open than I was before I was diagnosed. Right. The long-winded answers, Jimmy, gives the quick ones. No, I appreciate it. Well, I do. If it's all right, I wanted to add to that. There's like, you know, and one other thing that was always, was maybe unique to our experience, but that I loved with dad was, this small community, we actually don't live in Sedona. It's just easier to say dad went to Sedona. It's actually a little tiny town called Page Springs and it's outside of Sedona. And there's one single restaurant in this yeah. whole town. There's not a lot of people. It's about a couple thousand people. Give it a shout out. Thing that I love free grill. It's delicious. <laughs> the coolest dudes in town, Mario and Jim, right? But then, <laughs> these guys, this little tiny community came together. And when Megan was talking about having you know the chefs come and everything these guys would like drop off cocktails for us they'd come by and they were very respectful they'd never like try and see dad or anything they were just trying to help and the last time we ever ate anywhere out of the lunch with dad was we went to their little restaurant this tiny little grill we took dad out and we went and it's emotional to even bring up but as he got up to leave this whole place this tiny little place like 50 people can eat in this place and they're all clapping for him and everything and it was one of these moments that I'll never forget of like this tiny little town is like knows they're there to help. I mean, it was so emotional. But the best part about these guys at Up the Creek are right after we left, the word went out that dad had ate there because nobody had seen him in a few months. So these Russian TV guys show up. Now let me tell you something. The last place in the world a bunch of RT guys should show up is Up the Creek Grill in Page Springs, Arizona. <laughs> and the, the owner of the place ran him out of the place. I don't know if he had like a bat or something. But I hear this story later from someone else that the owner of the place is like, we love John McCain here. One more Russian shows up. <laughs> you know? And it was just this, it was a story that I never forgot about where I just was so happy to like, you know, and I go there all the time now. It's right down the street from my house. I just have never forgot that it was like, you know, as all these terrible memories happened, there was a few really beautiful ones that really stuck with me. And the Up the Creek guys are kind of my boys now. So. <laughs> so weird too because it was people were very interested in seeing what he looked like as he was dying there was like a curiosity again I work in media forever and I know what a dying photo of a famous person people are very curious about and Jimmy is right that community of people up there were so respectful and our place in Sedona it's I mean he's right technically Page Springs but it's like 
eight minutes away. It was nice to be able to like, it was, you felt so isolated there and like you were hiding out. There was shame in the death process, which I don't, I think that's a very Western unhealthy way to look at dying. And he's right. We would go to that restaurant with dad and he was very sick and people were so respectful, like no picture, no anything. And having that kind of trust, I agree with Jimmy. I think it's still why I'm so emotionally attached to that area of Arizona, but people are also very kind. They're not all jerks. And Mm -hmm. I felt like that was such a privilege too. Right. Well, thank you both for sharing. And that must've been such an incredible experience, you know, having that community. I think that's also, again, why I started the organization, because I personally didn't have that. My father's just spent a lot of time at home and then he went into hospice because it was super quick. And that's a whole story for another time. But I think it's so great that being that even though your father was a public figure, that you were still able to maintain this sort of like respect and privacy through your community to help your family continue to go through what you were doing on a, I guess, private basis or more so just not be exposed and still be able to continue doing what you all enjoy doing together without any external pressure of whether it was photography or anything else. So I think that's really nice. And I'm happy you guys gave the restaurant a shout out. (laughs) So it was months into your father's diagnosis when you all shared the news of what he was going through. When that became public, how did you both manage all of the attention at the same time while trying to maintain privacy in your family? And of course, your, your grief and trying to process everything that was going on. I can take this one first because mine's a lot different than Megan's. I've always been a private person. I'm going to spend the rest of my life as a private person. It was a lot easier for me than it was for her because I had the military and I could disappear. And I mean that with every bit of respect, Megan. Like, I couldn't imagine what you had gone through through that period because if there was a wave of shit coming our way, Megan had to take the brunt of it. And I had the ability to just go be depressed. (laughs) You know what I mean? And it's terrible to say that, but it was a very different experience for me than it was for Megan or my mother, you know, because I could, I live in the middle of nowhere. That's why my internet is awful and you keep having to ask me to repeat things. (laughs) (laughs) I am a very private man with my family and and it was, it was the ability to just kind of try and focus on my emotions. So, but I know for, for Megan's, that's a very different answer. First of all, he, he actually, we publicly said they announced that he was dying of brain cancer pretty soon after he was diagnosed. Like it was like, I think like a week after it was pretty soon. And then I was working at The View at the time. And people, I think, were just very curious about if I was ever like late to work or took a day off for whatever reason, people just automatically assumed that he was like, that was the end, which was very hard. But it was also a blessing because, again, I felt like a community of people around me that was so beautiful. Like you said, like you just connect with people who have had glioblastoma. And there's actually a girl named Lexi who had glioblastoma. And she messaged me on Twitter that she has glioblastoma and she's fighting it. And her biggest wish was to go to Taylor Swift's concert and to meet Taylor Swift. She was like a Taylor Swift, like mega fan. Oh yeah. I saw that online. Yeah. And I literally went insane. And I was like, let her meet Taylor Swift. And I did all these things you're not supposed to do when you work on The View. I said it on air without getting permission. I was like, let her, I, she needs to meet Taylor Swift. She has glioblastoma. And Taylor Swift, to her credit, she's an you know, incredible artist, met her. They set up a thing where they met her. We sent her with limo and flowers and gave her like dinner and had like a great night out where she could go meet her. And you know, I kept in touch. She ended up coming on the show and I met her and her family. And then I met some other people, a man who runs an organization called Stash Strong. He was also on the podcast. Yeah, Colin. He's great. He's brilliant. And he's really such an incredible advocate and his family are so resilient. And so I got to meet those kind of people and it's dark, but it's beautiful. Pain can unite us as well. So it wasn't all bad. I mean, everybody has challenges. This this diagnosis, if you're diagnosed with it yourself or your loved one or friend, whomever is, as you're well aware, Amber, it is just the worst. It is horrible. It's so hard. It's so scary. And being able to bond with people over that intensity is a blessing and it still is. I think that's something that 
is so great about our community as well is because we do this thing called Warrior Wednesdays, where every Wednesday we share a story about someone with GBM. And it's been going every Wednesday consecutively since 2020, which is absolutely unreal. And on every single post on Wednesday, you'll see there's like 20, 50, you know, tons of likes and comments. And there's people are just saying like, I'm here for you. I get it. Like, hey, I just sent you a DM. Like my mom's going through the same thing. And it's so nice to see people making all these connections. And I think that's so nice, especially now, because when both of our fathers were going through this, I don't think there was a particular community of people that understood. So I think it's incredible to see how far glioblastoma and brain cancer has come since 2018. And, you know, the three of us were dealing with that. So mm-hmm. community is definitely so important. And so I think that's something we, we really try to pride ourselves in and, and keep going. So, you know, moving forward, Megan, this question is for you. You mentioned on a few interviews that you had a hard time talking about glioblastoma and doing advocacy work. Do you feel like that's changed in the last year? How do you feel about advocating for brain cancer now? Oh, yeah. I mean, I'm happy to do anything at any point, you know, anything you would like me to do, please always use me as a resource. I said that because after he died, I just couldn't keep talking about it for a period of time. It was not killing me is not the right verbiage, but it was emotionally killing me. I felt like I was not healing. And I think part of it was that I was in fight mode for so long when he was sick that when he finally died, I was like, oh my gosh, I have all this time and space to think about this tragedy. So I had a hard time like being an advocate and talking about it. And now because I'm far enough along in my grief process, again, it's a privilege to be a part of this community and to help anyone you can. And people talk to me about it all the time. Like Jimmy said, I, I meet people, we're everywhere, airports, restaurants, whatever. There are much more amount of people in the country who've been touched by this than I think people realize. It seems like it, you just hear about it all the time now. So yeah, I'm happy to be an advocate. Well, we're glad to have you. And I'm, you know, I'm thankful we all connected on, you know, unfortunately under unfortunate circumstances, but I think it's great that we're all able to do this and continue bringing awareness and, and helping people that are listening to the podcast as well. We'll be right back in just a moment. And now back to the conversation. Speaking about grief, how are you both doing in your grief process? Are there any particular things that you found that have helped you? What does that look like for you? I mean, it's like I get all these thoughts after Megan talks and then she just keeps throwing me forward. Like, I don't (laughs) understand it. I'm (laughs) I'm just joking. I don't know. Every day's hard. You know, like right now, right? Like I'm really emotional right now. My dog died Monday. He was an old doc. He was an old bulldog and he died Monday and I'm, I'm fine for months. And I don't, I, you know, we were talking about things pop up. I had, I saw a book in the store the other day. Me and dad always liked to read together. That reminded me of him. And I was like crying in this bookstore in Prescott, Arizona. Couldn't understand why it came out of nowhere. And then like Monday, my dog dies. And I found out like Monday night, I was like in a laundry room because I didn't want my kids to see me. And I'm bawling, like bawling. And I realized I was crying because it, like we're getting close to dad's anniversary and that was such a whirlwind. And I felt like there was other, it was so much more emotions. So to answer your question, like where I'm at, I'm probably doing pretty shitty to be honest, but it's, it's just, you know, you, it comes and goes like we were talking about. It's like these waves, like i like I said, like six, nine months will go by and working. I don't, I don't think about it. I don't think about anything. And I think I'm doing great. And not to say you can ever get over something like that, but I'm, I'm over it. And then I feel like a sledgehammer hits me and I just like fall apart. So it's just something, you know, these are emotional days and he's still so much part of our lives. And, you know, I found this, my friend, I'll grab it in a second. My friend sent me a, a framed picture of dad the other day that I'd never seen. And it's like him in prison with a cigarette in his mouth. And I'm pretty sure I'm the owner of the only picture in the world of John McCain with a cigarette in his mouth. And once again, you know, I'm like a, a puddle all of a sudden. So I don't know. It's something that I guess it's a never ending process. And then here comes Megan with a way better answer. So, <laughs> Well, first of all, like Amber, you wouldn't know this and the listeners won't be able to know this, but Jimmy looks a lot like my dad and they have incredibly similar mannerisms and things they say. And sometimes I get really creeped out 
when you call me or when we're like hanging out in Sedona, excuse me, Paige Frank, because he's so much like him in so many ways. And again, like just the way you talk and the the advice you give me about things. Just, <laughs> this isn't who we are, Megan. This is yeah. <laughs> like, They're going to move on, move on. And he says it in the same cadence that my dad does or did, excuse me. It's beautiful, but can also be very creepy. So my grief process is like Jimmy. It's a journey. It's up and down. But having a close family and having a brother that keeps him so much alive, I think we're all keeping him alive in different ways. But I mean, Jimmy's like, he's getting, his hair is getting more gray every day. You look so much like him. <laughs> so it's, it's just, an, our family keeps him alive in so many different ways. Grief for me, it is like exercising. It's like anything that you have to continue doing and stay on top of to keep your life holistically going well. That's what grief is to me. And if I ignore it and let it go, then it'll come back and I'll have bad days. And I really have to stay mentally and emotionally healthy in a way that's quite frankly, a huge pain in the ass, but I have to keep doing it. Otherwise I'll spiral too. And I just try and think about how blessed we are in so many ways and think of the good. You lost your dad when you were 22. I was 32. You know, I got 10 more years of my dad than you got with yours. That in and of itself is just horrible, horrific pain for you. A huge blessing for me. I try and think about what an impact he made. I can't go anywhere about people wanting to talk about him. And I think about our great love. All of us loved him so much. And I think particularly for political families, that's unusual. There's a lot of, you know, stereotypically a lot of dysfunction in political families and children who maybe don't have the best relationship, maybe publicly don't say nice things about their parents. It's our rule than the exception. So I just try and celebrate as much as I'm capable of doing. But grief's really hard. As anybody knows, it's really hard. It's maybe the hardest thing in my life because it's so unpredictable, as all of you know. You know, you're just fine, fine, fine. And then like the Beach Boys come on in CBS and I'm like, I got to get out of here. Like it's stuff like that. (laughs) (laughs) I creeped out a whole family at the Grand Canyon because I hadn't been since he died. And then I I texted you. I went (laughs) a few weeks ago. I drove up and then I'm standing there and I'm staring at the Grand Canyon. I realized the last time I saw it, I was with him. Uh-huh. And all of a sudden, this grown man with a lot of gray hair is crying his eyes out. And there's like a family of five from China next to me. Like, what the hell is wrong with this guy? <laughs> like, like, we were just on vacation. Yeah. It's so beautiful. I can't handle it. I'm like, oh, grizzle. You know what I mean? <laughs> you know? So, yeah. No, sorry. I just wanted to add that. <laughs> no, it's it's funny. Do you still feel your father's presence in any way? I know this is, you know, going off of a little, little spiritual route. But do you still feel like that he's around you, anything that that particularly reminds you of him. I know for me, for example, I remember there was this one time my dad was like, walk, I live in Miami and we were walking down the street and like he would walk my dog every morning without, and like that was his morning routine. He'd walk the dog and come home. And there was this one street where this like black crow would attack him and he came home and he's like this, like this stupid crow just like, like he had like, you know, like blood on his head. But then like every day for a week, like he's like the stupid crow again. And he'd get like, I was like, why is this crow attacking my dad? And like now whenever I see a crow, I'm like, I think that's my dad. I texted Megan this weekend. Yours is a crow. Ours is the hawk. (laughs) There's this stupid hawk that lives on our place that there's only like 10 in America. And one of them happens to be at our red nest at our place. And I this weekend was up at our place and I was walking around with my son and I saw the hawk and I took a picture of it and I think Megan texted me back like oh look it's like dad is somebody and I was just like it was one of those moments again where I'm like you know in this place you know that he unfortunately passed away at he spent the most time there and his intention was to leave the senate after his last run and to move there so for me just going there his closet still smells like him we've not touched it it's all his clothes and everything so if you talk on a spiritual level, I mean, I catch myself like talking out loud to him there. It's like it's very heavy presence, almost like on your back when you're there, which I know is good. If like Megan said, you've been working on your grief, but it's bad if you're in a tough spot because all of a sudden this like wave hits you and you're like, oh, my God, I got to get out of here. You know? <laughs> you know what I mean? So I'll let Megan answer, but don't ever forget the hawk. The hawk. In the middle of my wedding, my dad went, yeah, look, there's the hawk. Because I got married down there. <laughs> so. Yeah, I 
think everyone's, you know, spiritual relationship with higher power, if they choose to have one, is their own. I feel him in different ways, but I don't feel him all the time. I always feel like I feel him and he sends me messages when I really need it. But he's definitely, I don't feel it Mm -hmm. all the time. I feel it when I'm panicking and when I like really need guidance. So yeah, I mean, but it's definitely there. I kind of feel like it's like, you know, those like bathroom walls that are glass is like clouded. You can't see through it, but Mm -hmm. you know, there's glass and there's someone on the other side. That's how I feel about my dad being dead is like, I can't see Mm -hmm. him and I can't feel it, but I know it's there. Like I know the other side, which has been a very difficult exercise for me to surrender to because I hate not being able to feel like I have control over a situation and Mm -hmm. you don't have control when someone dies. Do you feel like, Megan, that was difficult for you since you mentioned that you're very type A and you like to be in control? Yeah. I mean, I was, Jimmy was, he's not giving himself enough credit. He was incredibly stoic as was my other sister, Bridget and my brother, Jack. They're very, very stoic when he died. I was stoic when he was dying. They were stoic when he died. When he died, I was like a feral animal. I was like screaming and you know, in the days after when we went to his funerals, like I was just a mess, like a mess. I probably should have been sedated mess. And I think like my emotions just couldn't control myself because it it finally like hit me what happened because I think Mm -hmm. I was always waiting for a miracle. Yeah, similar for me. I mean, I'm very like type A and I like everything to be perfect. I would always say like, the reason I don't like flying, and again, it's a, it's a common thing, is that people aren't in control. And that's why people, most people are scared of planes because they, they can't control if anything happens, right? And so that's a, a thing issue that I have. It's like, if I can't control it, like, you know, like, if, I, if I'm in control, I can, you know, hopefully change the outcome. But I was like, I felt kind of helpless. Like, what do I do? And there's, there's nothing that I can do. And so I think it's definitely challenging to deal with. But it's, uh, I guess, you know, grief and, and death is definitely its own beast in their own ways. For both of you, do you feel like your father's passing has affected the legacy you intend to leave behind? I know you mentioned that you feel like you were particularly a different person prior to glioblastoma and different afterwards. Do you think any of that's changed in the way that you know you continue to live your life? For me, completely. Me and my wife, right after dad died, moved. We have a home right near where he died. We moved up to the middle of nowhere, Arizona. I've completely redirected my life in a way that One of the last conversations me and him had were about being happy and how even as such an old man who had accomplished so much, he felt like life was too short and that he did have some regrets. But the regrets he was expressing to me were nothing that you would expect out of a man like John McCain. They were more like he wished he had taken more time to himself for certain things and that he had traveled more and that he had, you know, even in a way worked a little less and stuff like that. And they were I guess you could call them the normal musings of a man who's at death's doorstep, but it really affected me. I mean, very heavily. And I moved home right after he died. I sold my home, my house. I moved up where I felt like I could be closer to him. I literally was working at like a corporate, you know, atmosphere. And now I'm a farmer. (laughs) I mean, I, I literally, you know, so yeah, it did. It affected me very heavily, but in a way where I guess I took control of my own life and redirected it to a way I felt like I would be happier. And I am happier. I am very much happier. And to give Megan some credit, you know, she was there through the whole process. I remember calling her. I'd had a few whiskeys, I'll admit it. And I was like, I'm thinking about moving to a farm. (laughs) And, you know, and Megan was like, go for it. You know, life's too short, you know? And we had these long conversations where, yes, dad was a very central presence of it. And she was very supportive and was like, look, you know, we only have one life to live, so go for it. I took that to heart. So if you're in, if the answer is yes. And if some would say in a very drastic, unhinged manner, I changed my entire life. <laughs> <laughs> no. I think for me, every day is a gift. When I'm talking, it's, and it's so cliche, I know, but whenever I'm, there's some kind of like minor crisis, I left this giant show in like a very dramatic way. My agent was like, how are you still being so, you're not flipping out, you're not, and I was like, try glioblastoma, try that. Let me tell you, leaving the view is like <laughs> a two on the Richter scale and glioblastoma is 100. Everything in my life when it's pain, there's still nothing that can compare to the pain and intensity of that experience. So it also has brought deep perspective to my life about health is really the ultimate blessing, I think, more than anything. And 
my acute awareness of my mortality, of time, of what's really actually important, family, friends, living as purpose-driven life as any of us are capable of, and just change my same thing I'm sure happens to everybody who has a close encounter with death. And again, not that I personally did, but you watched it. I mean, I'm just so grateful that I don't have to like go to Mayo Clinic every day and watch radiation. You know, I'm so grateful that I don't have to, that I'm not sick, that I don't have to, I'm not going away, but that I don't have to like, people who go through cancer, it's horrific. It is horrible. I mean, there are people who are sick for years and years. There are families who suffer for years and years and years. I mean, I just try and see the glass half full as much as I can every day because again, tomorrow's not guaranteed. And anytime anything really bad is happening, I, I always say to like my husband, I'm like, it doesn't matter. It's not like glioblastoma. Tree fell in our car. It's not like glioblastoma. Like, you know what I mean? It's, it's brought such deep perspective. In That's a life. really great perspective too. And, and I always find that every time, you know, all of the interviews that I've done throughout this show, every single person provides different feedback in sort of regards to this answer about like continuing to stay positive and always looking on the bright side. And I feel like as I continue to do this and like I pause the podcast for a week and like the being grateful and as thankful and, you know, as, as aware of life, it's not on top of my head. And then we speak and I'm like listening to you speak. And I'm just like, oh my God, like she's so right. I have to get that back at the top of my head again. So I appreciate you sharing. And I hope everyone listening will also, you know, take that feedback to heart or that those thoughts. And, you know, I do remember that every day is a gift and that it's so important that we continue everything that we're doing. I'm not Gandhi. It's not like I don't have moments where things are annoying and things piss me off and I'm angry about things, but it certainly doesn't stay with me as long as it normal as it would have before. Like I just feel like I shake things off so much easier. I move on. But you know, again, it's just as you're aware, brain cancer is a cancer that takes away who you are. Your brain being taken away from you will annihilate everything that makes us human, everything that makes us who we are. And I just find it the most evil of all cancers. I'm obviously biased because that's what our dad died of. But I think there's a strong argument to believe it's the worst cancer. And don't think you can go out, you can leave an experience like that not completely changed. And that certainly, I certainly am. And I guess looking back on all of the time that you've had with your father, is there one particular experience that like makes you super happy to think about that brings you comfort, that brings you joy, that you, it's just a constant reminder of him? <laughs> with dad uh, yeah i mean i mean everything really you know but when i think about him i think about these walks he would force us to go on like crazy he was a big you know his body he was a very physical guy before he went to prison he was a boxer a champion boxer he, so after prison i feel like for him one of the things that always affected him the rest of his life was that his body had been like almost destroyed so he the only really thing he could dude for exercise was walk so we would go on these like astronomically long walks talking about <laughs> everything in the world and and that was the best advice you would ever get from him was on those walks it was him in his element completely so for me i like now when i was younger i would have told you i hated it but i like going on long walks and it reminds me of him and i think about things and it helps me clear my mind so that's my experience. I don't have a singular one, but if I go on a long walk, you could guarantee I'm probably thinking about him. You know what I mean? Yeah, I mean, that is way too hard of a question. I mean, it would take me like years to tell you all the things that bring me joy about my dad. I mean, like millions. But I will say the main thing that resonates with me still is that he almost died three times in his life before he actually died. He was like a cat with nine lives. He was it's really crazy. He didn't die sooner in so many different ways. It just like, wasn't the plan. And he really, really, really loved being alive. He liked eating great meals. He liked toasting and drinking and dancing and laughing and good music and cooking for his friends. Again, it's cliche, but he really knew how to like carpe the diem. Like he really knew how to make moments interesting. He was always laughing, telling dirty jokes having so many people around his friends around all the time. And I think that's what has, it makes me happy is that he really lived, you know, not everybody does that. Not everybody has that opportunity. And just thinking about simple things like him 
again, like laughing at dinner and always wanting to do things and travel. And as Jimmy said, like hike and walk and fish. And he just was, he was so active. It's almost like time was always running out for him. So he was just always doing everything. And he always wanted you to come along and he made friends everywhere. Like I remember when he was very sick, we had a bee problem in Sedona and this beekeeper came. Remember that to take like a big, it was like a wasp hive down. And then he was like, invite him to dinner. And we had like this random beekeeper to dinner. And then he told us about how he was also a preacher on the side, which is why there was a cross on his beekeeping outfit. And we like asked him all these questions about bees. And I'm sorry, but like, I've been around a lot of famous people. There are no famous people inviting beekeepers to dinner anywhere. He just like loved meeting people and talking to people. And the Safeway Starbucks in Sedona, where he used to get his coffee, they would like write notes to him and he was friends with all the baristas. And like when I go in now, they're still like love dad. And like he just made friends everywhere. And I get things on social media all the time where people are like, I met your dad in an airport. I met your dad at, you know, a restaurant. I met your dad at a bookstore. He was so great. We talked for blank minutes. And she's always talking to everybody. And I'm telling you, I've around a lot of politicians. Normally they're like, can't get in and out of their like car with their bodyguards fast enough. And they don't like to interact. And dad loved people. And I think that's part of it too. That's one of the things that makes me so happy is how much he loved being around everybody. Yeah. Well, again, thank you for sharing. I, I think it's incredible that you have all these great memories with him. And it's so nice to hear a different perspective about the way you viewed your father. Obviously, you know, it's, it's your father and not something that I'm able to read on a headline. So I really do appreciate both of you, you know, being so open and vulnerable and sharing all these personal experiences and I can see both of you like light up when you speak about it. And I, th- I think I get the same way about when I talk about my dad. So it's nice that I think, you know, we can connect this way and being able to to celebrate the people that our, our fathers were and cherish these memories that we, that we have with them. And Megan, in an Instagram post last year, you mentioned, all my passion, everything I know and believe in my soul comes from the two of them. I only understood why I was shown so much until after he was gone. What do you feel like you were shown or have learned since your father has passed away? And does it affect what you want to pass on to your daughter, Liberty? I feel like he was always teaching us in small ways and in big ways. And small ways, when I gave his eulogy, I told a story about how I fell off a horse when I was 11 and I broke my collarbone and I was crying and wanted to go, you know, I didn't want to ever get on a horse again. He made me get on the horse literally after they like, I went to the doctor and they like put a sling in me and he made me get back on a horse. It gets crazy. Like it's like old school shit, but I'm not scared of horses. And I really know how to like pick myself up and move on from things very easily and like shake it off. And he just showed me how to live and survive in the world in a way that I'm really grateful for. And not to be like cliche, I'm almost 38. So I'm like pushing middle age now. There's a lot of parenting advice that I got from him that I'm trying to trying to give to my daughter, even though she's only two. But it's so funny because she we were just home and we were walking, not hiking, because she's too little to hike. And she fell down and then she was on the ground and she goes, Big girl, big girl, big girl. And she like shook it off and stood up. And I was like, This is my child. She's got it. She's like, I'm a big girl. I'm gonna like shake it off and keep walking. Like she didn't sit and cry, whatever. And I was like, I'm doing something because this is how my dad was. It's like, you're not really hurt. You're fine. It just like tripped and fell. You're okay. So it's this toughness. And then I just feel like there's just all these like simple advice that I cling to and use all the time. I'm grateful for it. I'm grateful for everything. And again, my mother too. People, we just don't talk about as much because she's still here and we can tell her on the phone when we see her, but just taught me how to live in every way. Is that a good way to describe it to me? A hundred percent. A hundred percent. And Jimmy, same question for you. I mean, for your kids, what do you feel like you've passed on to them that your father's taught you or that you wanted to show them? I got a single good answer for you. Dad, when I was young, gave me a choice. I can read or I can do chores outside. And I always chose reading. So I give the same choice to my kids. And it's the greatest gift he's ever given me was my absolute love of reading that I have to this day. I read my as ferociously as I can. And I give the same question to my kids. And, and, you know, I know we were looking for a really grandiose answer because Megan's better at this, but that's the (laughs) biggest thing he left me. And I have just direct electrical current to my kids with it. I think the most important thing that he left with me personally that I'm trying to get 
across to my kids and to my family and everything is always that like, even if it's bad right now, right. If something's bad, whether it's someone's diagnosed with cancer or you're, you're in a car accident or anything, things always get better. And that's like the big thing I hold on to is at this moment, things are awful. You know, and that's like his thing. You know, I felt like a jerk when he, after he's diagnosed, I'd be like crying on him and he's like consoling me. And he'd be like, hey, look, things will get better. It's fine. Just, you know, blah, blah. blah. And that's, that's something I, I hold on to because we've all had adversity in our life. For me, it was, you know, like the war. And, you know, whenever I got really down, like things are bad. So I caught myself the other day with my son being like, look, this is awful right now, but we can move on. And I was like, oh, Jesus. (laughs) So there you go. Well, thank you both so much for sharing. I'm so thankful to have met you and for you have taken the time to come on the podcast and share your stories. Again, like I know this is, it's being vulnerable is not the easiest thing, especially when it comes to glioblastoma. So really thank you. And I think your story and what you shared will inspire a lot of people to continue sharing their stories and raising awareness. And it was a pleasure. No, thank you. And thank Thank you you for being so brave with your podcast and helping heal people and there's catharsis in sharing stories and storytelling. So I really appreciate it. And I wish that you were around when we were going through our process, because I think it would have been really helpful. And I know you're helping so many people now. So thank you again. Thank you. That's it for this week's show. Thank you so much for tuning in again to another episode of Glioblastoma, aka GBM. To get in touch with our organization, visit us online at gbmresearch.org or visit us on Instagram or Facebook at Glioblastoma Research. Visit us on Twitter at glioblastoma.org or visit us on LinkedIn at Glioblastoma Research Organization. To make a donation to the organization, which is fully tax deductible, visit us online at gbmresearch.org where you can designate your donation in honor of someone or find other methods that you can make a donation with. Thank you again for supporting us, for supporting the show, and we'll see you next week.